Welcome to Fintech Insider Focus in association with Visa. In this new show, we are taking the burning questions from financial services across the globe and really putting it under the microscope with explainers, expert panels, and in-depth interviews, all to bring the global community into focus. See what we did there. I'm today joined by my Fintech Insider Focus co-host, Dan Rosebury, who is the Global Fintech Partnership Lead over at Visa. How's it going, Dan? Doing great. Thanks for having me, Dan. Very, very good. Well, this is the second part of our focus on the question, can open finance ever be truly global? Uh, If you haven't heard part one of this series, go find it wherever you found this podcast and listen to our panel discussion with guests from Wise and MX. We spoke about the potential of open finance for everyday people, the challenge for regulators across the globe, and any other hurdles that were in the way of making a truly global system. Um, Dan, to get us going, can you remind us why open finance is such a a big key trend for, for Visa going into 2023? Yeah, so we've seen open banking be a great first step towards both inclusion and really unwinding consumers and businesses from bank data silos, for example. But we get really excited about the power of a broader data set, whether it's from within a finance institution or from third-party data set, let's say a accounting system for a business, payroll, or even investment asset information for a consumer that could really help to open new use cases, new products and capabilities, uh, smarter terms, say interest rates, et cetera, that could be even tailored or personalized to the end consumer. Um, and, and also excited about kind of providing a more holistic viewpoint and vantage point on both consumers and businesses that could augment the data that's flowing today and provide like we said, include more people into the financial ecosystem. Yeah. I mean, you touched on in, in part one and, and sort of referenced it a little bit there, but the the ability to really bring so many, you know, millions of new people into financial services because of, of, of really enriching that data. I mean, that is a, this isn't just about, you know, tweaking of financial products. This has the 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 fabric of financial services as we talk about 11FS. This has the potential to really change it that dramatically, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. Uh, we're talking about kind of in the billions of consumers and businesses that could be into the digital economy for the first time and kind of enable or, or really as a, a starting point for them to transact. And then that starts to kind of create more data that could lead to better outcomes, better solutions for them as well. So think about maybe starting with uh, a checking account and a way to pay for things online. And that could evolve into access to loans or credit or revolving loans that could open new opportunities for them personally or to grow a business. Very exciting. So in the second part, we're sitting down with a prominent figure in the open finance space to dive into the weeds of this topic and offer a different perspective. Our very own David Barton Grimley was lucky enough to grab some time with Samantha Seaton, who is the CEO over at Money Hub. First up, a message from Visa. Visa's fintech fast-track program is streamlining the onboarding process for fintechs, enabling them to gain access to Visa's powerful capabilities and network. Visa and their enablement partners help fintechs launch and scale cards, virtual credentials, and disbursement programs. To learn more, visit partner.visa.com. (laughs) 
Thanks, David. For our listeners who might not be familiar with me, I'm David Barton-Grimley, Global Strategy Director of Embedded Financial Services here at 11FS, and I'm a certified fintech nerd, which is why I'm delighted to talk to so many amazing people in the industry on this series. As mentioned, it's great to be joined on Fintech Insider Focus by Sam Seaton, CEO of MoneyHub. Sam, how are you today? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thank you so much, Sam, for joining us today on the podcast. Um, let's go into it. So for an international audience, can you remind us about who MoneyHub are, what they do, and maybe where open finance sits in your wheelhouse? So MoneyHub is all about helping people be better off with their money. So it's a pretty sweeping statement, and there isn't a place in the world that doesn't want to help people be better off with their money. But the way we do that really is to have a direct app. So in the UK, you can download a direct app. Uh, but for the rest of the world, we have our API platform, which is used by businesses that want to really get a better tune out of their customers is what I think. Fantastic. So let's jump right in. We have a lot to unpack here. Um, and I think it, it might be good to start with open finance broadly um, and how it allows your company to do what wasn't possible before, you know, particularly in the UK with open banking before that came in. So I think, you know, we've got to start off with probably saying that, you know, open finance is to me, like 2D. I mean, if we think about open banking as being one-dimensional because it allowed us to see into a set of data that, that traditionally we had no access to, consumers and businesses didn't really have access to the banking level transactions of their customers. And so that's what open banking has done. Open finance is incredibly exciting because it's 2D. So it opens it up a bit more to being savings, investments, um, even things like property, being able to link up your properties. Um, I think we've recently put AutoTrader into the API platform. It's been really popular being able to link your car value up. I think you can't underestimate the power of bringing all of someone's data together for them, either to help you as a business work with them or just as the person to give a bit of clarity and control over their money. And then you, you take open finance onto another level, which I don't think we have cracked at all yet, which is open data, which is when we're going to see, you know, all our retail spend, our Google Maps data, our dating app data that we've, you know, all got out there, you know, all of those other kind of less, more esoteric data fields and, and finds, they'll all come into the mix. And that's when we'll have a proper 3D view, you know, of the customer. Yeah, it's super exciting to see what's coming on down the line, um, particularly with uh, open data on top of open finance. And I'm just thinking about your ambition as MoneyHub to close that data gap for all businesses um, whilst empowering the consumer also with their data um, at, at the same time. I'd love to go into what this means for you and your customers. Well, so for me, it's all driven by the consumer because traditionally the consumer hasn't even been aware that, that we have ownership of our data. You know, I don't, I just think, I think it's a new, it's a new, window into the world of data, isn't it? People haven't really valued it. You know, they've, they've been using it for years, actually, without even realizing it. And, and I think we're seeing a big shift to the realization that, you know, we are, we are the, 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 the driver of so much in the economy. And obviously, businesses need to get with the program is what I think, that businesses, you know, are sitting there not realizing how much data they've got, you know, through their customers. And that if they could just dial it up, I mean, I laugh about, you know, dial it up to like 11, you know, on the, on the app, you know, that's what I think we can do now with, with access to the data. But, but I, say, I say that um, it's so good because actually 
Who doesn't want to be serviced in a way that's convenient, effortless, personalized? I mean, we're so, so time poor as people. That's not going to get any better. And the only way time poor people get to be better off is, is to have everyone working for us in a way that, you know, it's, it's just makes life easier. You know, I, I, just, I just think of all that we do with technology and, you know, we, we just expect it to work. And then, and then, you know, when we when it doesn't work, we get terribly upset. But in in financial services, it, in my experience worldwide, it really doesn't work. Like it just doesn't work. Like we we're not even got to this the place. You know, you take you know your BA app, your British Airways app, you know, which works ninety percent of the time until you know, there's a there's a big outage or something, and then it doesn't work. And then you're like, oh, I've got to speak to someone. And actually, in financial services, I get upset because we've not even got to the BA app stage. You know, we're not we're not there yet. And open data is such a diverse subject, right? The data sources, the data types, the needs that we can solve for our customers. I'd love to talk a little bit about, you know, the challenges of getting this in, right, into the into the pipeline, into the the APIs, and into the app, and getting it actually actually working. Yeah, well, it's really tough. I mean, anyone that's working in the industry trying to connect up all of the APIs will know, you know, how tricky it is because the devil's always in the detail, isn't it? So it's all very well having the standard APIs, which are fantastic. But obviously, there's a lot of providers behind those APIs. And, and we all know that it's not possible for them to all work beautifully all of the time. But that's actually what we need to happen. And I think that's one of the things that I would say about the UK, that we are probably ahead of the rest of the world in terms of the stabilization of the open banking infrastructure. You know, we can, we can talk about, you know, LATAM taking off with, you know, certain use cases, which is, which is absolutely fantastic, but it's not quite as easy to roll out a proposition across all of your customers in a truly uh, democratized way. I think in any other country apart from the UK at the moment, even Europe sits slightly behind the UK. And as you say, quite, quite rightly, I think that we have probably some of the best standards and legacy in open banking um, that exists in, in the UK at the moment. How does that allow us then to leapfrog um, from open finance into open data and how you use some of that open data to make some of the financial outcomes for customers um, a little bit better? Or, or just even more generally, what does open data mean um, in context of open finance? Well, I think... I think the, the open data, I think the, the good thing about where we're at is the regulation, we've got used to it here. I mean, in, you know, and, and it's not, it's also the same for some other parts of the world. So for example, we have our open banking infrastructure. We also have the pensions dashboard, which is coming online, which is again, access to all pensions through APIs. And then, you know, you go on to another level where the government is working hard to make uh, the energy telcos and all of that data accessible in the same way that we're accessing open banking and pensions data. So I think that shift in our world has happened and, you know, that will just drag all the investment companies and all those work, you know, along that path, whether they like it or not. And I think that's what we're seeing in some other parts of the world. You know, you can see it in Australia, you can see it in that time. They're embracing and jumping right through to open finance and open data in terms of the regulation and the direction of travel but the execution, as you'll know, David, the execution of this is quite tough and does take, whether we like it or not, much longer than I'd like it to take. But, 
you know, I just have to accept that I have to be impatient and put up with, you know, the fact that it takes what seems like an eternity to get anything, you know, where you need it to be. I give an example of variable recurring payments here in the UK. So variable recurring payments, you know, I'm so excited about because direct debits and other methods of payments whereby um, people have money taken from their account to pay a bill that is not sense checked and actually can go up or down without any warning is in this day and age, I think, unacceptable behaviour. And variable recurring payments puts the control back in the hands of the consumer, still enabling the business to take out pre-authorised payments, but with a limit. So, you know, you can take, an energy company can take money from, you know, to pay my energy bill. It, it's normally £100 a month. You can take up to 120 but you can't take more than 120 If you're going to do that, you need to come and talk to me. And that's the beauty, you know, of variable recurring payments over anything else, you know, I've seen in a long time. And, and I guess what I would say, though, is until all the banks support variable recurring payments, not, you know, just a few of the really good ones that are leading the way, it's very difficult for a business to roll that out because you can't say, well, to all my customers on the four great banks that are leading the way, we've got this service for you, but the rest of you have to do it this way. That's not how businesses roll out propositions. So that's what I mean about the standards and actually making people come to the party is actually quite important for what I call the democratization of what we're doing. Yeah, we all get very excited when we see things like VRP. I mean, I remember back in, in the day when OB first launched in the UK, you could just imagine the possibilities. And as a developer as, and as a business wanting to launch that, it's extremely exciting. But as you say, it takes years and years and years for this to percolate through the system. And, and you might argue that maybe that's, that's the right thing to make sure that the standards work, to make sure that the banks understand how it works. But it's, it's absolutely frustrating, I agree. You, you mentioned pensions there, which is, which is very interesting, because in terms of the impact that open data can have on people's, on people's lives, pensions is, is definitely a massive one, right? And, and retirement, I think, in, I think in general. I'd, I'd love to talk a little bit more about Money Hub and the, the, the feedback that you've received from some of your customers on the services you're doing right now with open data. Yeah, so we've had, um, so we've had one in particular on the pensions one, which really stands out to me. And it's lovely. So um, a gentleman called Derek actually didn't feel he could retire. I mean, he just genuinely was very worried about the fact that once he retired, that's it, and had this awful feeling that he would run out of money for, he, for him and his wife and the, and, the, and the children and the grandchildren that, you know, that he wanted to look out for. Um, and what was fascinating is he used Money Hub, the direct app, for two years. And after two years of using the direct app, he knew he could retire. And, and it didn't matter how many people told him he could retire, you know, even an advisor, the whole bit. He just had this, you know, worry that, that it wasn't right. And so until he could see it for himself, kind of touch it and feel it and get that direct feedback on how he was spending his money, what he was doing, and knowing then that actually he was, he was genuinely going to be able to cover what he needed. And, and it's things like that that happen that really motivate you to keep going, you know, despite, you know, some of the things we've talked about with the challenges because it makes you realize that you can at scale help people in a way that, you know, through the traditional world of financial advice, which is a, a shrinking world across the world, you know, this face-to-face one-on-one advice. You know, I don't know how the stats for the rest of the world, but I suspect it's very similar. We had 300,000 advisors in the UK. We're down to 22,000 now. So, you know, have this incredibly shrinking population of of you know, kind of like traditional financial advice, and and then an advice gap that's getting bigger and bigger. 
So, you know, if we don't use technology and scale to address that, you know, we're going to leave zillions of people on their own to try and what, get from A to B in a world that you and I both know is, is incredibly complex and fraught. Yeah, that's great to hear. And I, and I think before open banking came on, it would have been almost impossible for um, people like Derek to even know what's out there and be able to start to see um, what's going on with their finances. So it's, it's I think that the, the service that you, you're doing at, at Money Hub is, is absolutely critical um, for that. You also mentioned regulation, I think, which is a really interesting um, implication of things like open data and, and open finance. Um, and we have the consumer duty legislation coming in. I think next year is when when it comes into force. Um, it could have a huge impact. This year, it comes um, in in July. This year, sorry, I almost forgot yeah. we were 2023. I know, Happy exactly. New Year. <laughs> Just goes to show you how fast time flies. Um, yeah, July 2023, yeah. Um, so I'd love to know, um, you know, your your point of view on consumer duty and how that fits into the open data and open finance conversation. So how how long have you got? <laughs> I believe ten minutes. Um. So so it's um it's one of it's one of the you know biggest pieces of legislation for the UK that um, I I believe is also something the rest of the world are looking on at because we've had the treating the customer fairly obligation is what I call it, code of conduct, whatever you want to call it, for many years, along with, I think, many other countries where, you know, it's kind of baked in that you must treat the customer fairly. Uh, and then you, you know, will traditionally understand that, you know, suitability for a product or service is checked at the point of sale. And I think, you know, pretty much around the world, we've all got our heads around that. But what consumer duty is doing is taking that to an entirely another level, which I think is amazing for the consumer, fairly frightening for the product providers, because the onus is now on the product providers to step up and make sure that their customers are always informed about the products and services they have available and whether or not there are any others that are more suitable for them. And of course, if you think about that for just at a really, really simple level, you're a, a bank that provides you know, current accounts and you've got all sorts of current accounts on different levels and schemes, you know, premium accounts and ones that have got, you know, all your different pits and bobs attached to it that you pay a monthly fee for to your, you know, free current account that, you know, you get, you know, basic banking with. And you've got to monitor all the customers against those products and recommend at the point upon which it becomes suitable another product that you've got. And and that's, that's the onus is on you now as the product provider rather than the customer to say, oh, have you got? And, and I don't think... Any of the product providers, to be honest, have quite understood the implications, which for me is ongoing suitability. So now what we have to do as product providers is actually do on real time, ongoing suitability for the life that that customer is with us. So, you know, lo and behold, all of us are going to have a relationship with our mortgage provider that isn't on day one. And then, and then either when we when we tip out the door, you know, we're, we're actually going to have communications with product providers that we that we've never had before. I mean, I'll, I'll be falling off my chair when I get a, a communication from my product provider saying, Sam, you've just dropped to a different loan to value ratio because your property's, you know, gone up. And actually we can offer you a, you know, different different rate on your mortgage. I mean, can you imagine if someone said that to you? The cost of servicing, you know, real-time advice like that must be vast. 
um, the technology required to do that. And, and I think in some ways you can imagine that open data and open finance might in theory in the long term make that better because if the data is available and you can consume it via an API, maybe then you could build a service around it. But it feels like we're a very, very long way away from that. I mean, do, do you think that technology can help as it stands now to help businesses adapt? Well, definitely. But I mean, obviously a lot of legacy software is not going to cope, is it? But I, I, I think that's my other bugbear is that legacy software is legacy. You know, any software that you put in place becomes legacy. Uh, I get a bit frustrated at, at the legacy software that gets blamed all the time as to why we can't progress. And, you know, you don't see Apple and Amazon and Google and Facebook complaining about their legacy tech as to why they can't do what they need to do, do you? I mean, never. And yet our whole industry spends its entire life going, oh, well, we can't do anything because of legacy tech. It's like, well, the rest of the world has legacy tech out there. It's not just financial services that suffer from it. And yet they seem to manage to, you know, service the customer, keep going. And I think the problem is financial services as, a, as, a, as an industry is not still got their comfort level around spending money on tech. Like it's, it's like they do it for the core stack, you know, and for the, anything that's got to meet regulatory or, you know, and all that, they're, they're fine with that. But I don't think they've got their head around spending money on tech that helps the customer. Like it's not, it's not a compliance thing. It's not a, it's just, it's just delighting the customer. I just don't think that's made it into their DNA yet. Yeah. It takes time to filter through, right? Um, as you say, we could we could spend all day talking about this. It's such a fascinating implication uh, for the UK. I'd love to pivot a little bit back um, to you um, and the company and talk a little bit about your your roadmap. Uh, are you thinking about global expansion at the moment? So yeah, so we already have um, two clients that have taken us globally. So that's been a very good way for us to take you know a global step, if you like. So one of our clients has taken our APIs um, for a proposition that they provide to high net worth individuals and tax. So they've taken that across the entire world. And that was a great exercise for us. It even meant that, you know, for example, connecting to Israeli banks, which was not something that actually even any of the screen scrape providers that are that are quite common had 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 done. So it's definitely something that we will do. It's I'm just I'm just not at the stage where I'm that ready to set up an office in every you know country, you know, of the world. And I think post-pandemic, it's it's probably actually not necessarily the way the way you would go about it now which is the more traditional way in the past that I think companies have expanded so I think there's an opportunity really to work with your we have a lot of multinational clients to work with them to take what they've done here and successfully kind of put in place and then work with the providers and the different infrastructure needed in their different you know demographics around the world um, and and do it that way so that's that's definitely something we've started and it's something that we will do more of but I think the main thing that we've we've kind of set up at the moment is to set the business up with four main areas, which I think is slightly unusual because I really do see the power in open data and the aggregation as well as the payments. I, I don't see the power being particularly one or the other. I think combined, they're incredibly um, amazing. So um, having the ability to have an API platform that allows you to aggregate all data not, and not just financial data, as we talked about. We even have a, a link to LinkedIn so you can get your employment history, you know, downloaded, which helps for like rental, you know, getting rental properties and all those types of things. So, you, you know, just making whatever you need to do as a consumer with businesses easier and faster 
I think is, is not to be forgotten. So the API platform to do that. Then there's the whole world of decisioning, which has really woken up since Credit Kudos was sold to Apple. I think there's been a real, you know, kind of awakening about the fact that you can do this real-time decisioning, you know, on the spot with, you know, open finance data in particular. So having a, an area that's dedicated to decisioning is, is really, you know, something that's pretty key to us. And then obviously payments and then our white label or customized solution for our, you know, um, personal finance management app is, is the other bit. So, so we've got the four areas now, which is, you know, for us as a business, very exciting. And, uh, and I suppose if you think about all of these very interesting data sources, as you multiply that across um, markets, across regions, it, it begins to become extremely complicated as each country has its own way of operating, has its own regulatory requirements around it. I mean, do you ever see uh, a global operations for an API platform such as what you're um, describing could be a possibility or a reality, or is it an insurmountable group? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I absolutely see that because if you think about the way it's not, um, none of the data sources are standard. If you think about what you get, what we get from the car valuation providers is nothing like what we get from the pension providers through the API, nothing like what we get from open banking. So having a platform that allows all the different formats to come in and then having a layer on top of that, that actually just, you know, brings that together in a consumable format for businesses via the API or consumers via an app is something that you know we're really fortunate to have set up with Dave, our CTO, from day one, because he always saw the power of all the data, not just you know open banking data, even though that's obviously the first step on the journey. I think he saw the value of you being able to bring in your Google Maps data at some point as, as important as being able to bring in your open banking data, whereas I think other, other companies have started off thinking about open banking and then going from there. Whereas I think, you know, with our CTO coming in thinking, no, 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 it's all data. Open banking is one of those elements, I think is, is, the, is the way that we'll achieve a global solution. Because that way, it, you know, you can have the wrinkles underneath, can't you? And it's also interesting to see that strategically you're seeing open data being as important, if not more important than, than actual banking data. Because, because I guess the customer data, wherever it is, is going to be important to a banking and a, and a finance decision. To me, the banking data is just complementary. So, for example, the open data means that someone's going to tell me what car I should have. I'll never have to ever look up a magazine or a website about cars, which I'm not remotely interested in. But, you know, when I bought my electric car, I had to do quite a lot of research, even though I didn't want to. You know, but imagine if it could tell me, A, because it knows, you know, what I can afford. It knows where I drive, how fast I drive. You know, it knows all of those things about me. And, you know, I don't have to buy one of the cars that suggests, do I? I mean, I don't have to. But, you know, how good would it be to tell, you know, it might be that I should be on a scooter, not even in a car, because you don't go anywhere. You know, I don't know what it will tell me. But I would like to have that type of insight served up to me because that will make my life easier. And, and we want that everywhere, not just with car. We want it on everything we do, including our money. Agree. And are there any specific developments, I think, in, in open finance? So when you, when you think about standards, um, regulation, initiatives, uh, government, is there anything you would like to see happen or hope to see over the next few years? I think um, the main one I would say is um, enabling us to automate more money management for people. And I mean that in the terms of probably in the savings and investment world. So being able to automate more in terms of sweeping money to and from savings and investment accounts would help a lot. And at the moment, as you'll appreciate, the regulation is excluding the movement 
you know, from savings and investment accounts in terms of, you know, variable current payments and things like that, which I think is wrong. I, I think the ability to sweep money into a savings account and then actually being able to then sweep money back to a credit card account because actually somehow the credit card's gone a bit AWOL and you've got all this money over here in a savings account, we could just sweep a little bit of that per month and get the edge off that. That That's, that's what's really going to help people. And, and it's, it, it, we, kind of, we kind of go two steps forward and then one step back is how I feel. Sam, thank you so much for your time. This has been a fabulous discussion. I'm sure we could keep talking for hours. Um, that wraps up this edition of FinTech Insider Focus in association with Visa. Thank you so much for joining. Where can people find out more about you and Money Hub? I think the best place is our website or on LinkedIn, you know, to be fair, and, and you know, Twitter in the normal routes. But to be honest, yeah, our website, moneyhub.com or LinkedIn or Twitter, despite Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find me on LinkedIn at David BG. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps others find the show. For more on this discussion, look out for the next episode of Fintech Insider Focus in two weeks' time. Thanks very much. Goodbye.